hi everyone welcome back to this episode of the cranog today we're going to be talking about everyone's favorite thing and that is food and how it appears in folklore enjoy Just popping in with a quick trigger warning before listening to my section of the podcast, I discuss the wee bannock and I frame it around the topic of miscarriages. So just in case that you find that content sensitive, this is just a little warning to maybe skip past by a bit. Thanks. So I'm going to be doing the wee bannock um, and my interpretation of what I think it could mean. So a bannock is like a, a big scone. Um, it's like a baked good. and this is a story that um, comes from the borders and one of our contributors, Joanne, wrote a version of it. So I'm going to read the version and then give my little analysis. There once was an old man and his wife who lived in a lovely little cottage by the side of a burn. They were a content couple as they had enough to live on and enough to keep their lives busy. They considered themselves rich as they not only possessed a cottage with a little garden, they also owned two cows, five hens and a cockerel, an old cat and two kittens. The old man spent his days looking after the cows, the hens and the garden while his wife kept her day busy spinning thread. Not long after breakfast one day, the old woman had the thought that she would quite like an oatmeal bannock for supper that evening, so she baked a couple of very fine cakes and, once ready, put them down before the fire to harden. As they were toasted in front of the fire, the old man came in from the byre and sat down in his armchair to rest. His gaze fell upon the bannocks and, as they looked very delicious, broke one right through the middle and began to eat it. When the other bannock saw this, it resolutely decided that it should not have the same fate, so it jumped up, ran across the kitchen and out of the door as fast as it could. When the old woman saw it disappearing, she took off after it as fast as she could, but she was old and the bannock was young and it ran faster than she did and escaped over the hill behind the cottage. It ran and ran until it came across another large cottage that had just been newly thatched and seeing the door open, the bannock took refuge inside. It ran right across the floor towards a fire that was burning in the first room it came to. By chance, this cottage belonged to a tailor, and he and his two apprentices were sitting on top of a large table by the window, sewing away, while the tailor's wife was sitting beside the fire. When the bannock came running across the floor, the tailor and both apprentices got such a fright that they jumped down from the table and hid behind the tailor's wife. Hoot, she said, what a set of cowards you be. Tis a nice wee bannock. Get hold of it and divide it between you and I'll fetch you all a drink of milk. She jumped up from her chair by the fire, her husband and the apprentices followed suit, and together they all tried to catch the wee bannock. But the bannock ran them around and around the fire, dodging them all the while, until at last it got safely out of the door again. It ran down the road with one of the apprentices on its heels, who tried to snip it in half with his shears. However, the bannock ran too quickly for the poor apprentice, who at last stopped the chase and went back to the cottage. The bannock continued on until it came to a tiny cottage by the roadside. It ran through the door and there it met a weaver sitting at his loom, with his wife beside him winding yarn. What's that, Tibby? the weaver said, startled as the wee bannock flew past him. Oh, his wife cried in delight, jumping to her feet. It's a wee bannock. I wonder where it came from. Didn't bother your heed about that, Tibby, said the weaver. But grip it, my woman, grip it. But it was not easy to get hold of the bannock. It dodged and turned and twisted until at last it flew through the door again and disappeared down the hill. In the next cottage it came across, it found an old woman kerning in the kitchen. She had just filled her kern and there was still a little bit of cream standing in the bottom of her jar. Come away, little bannock, she cried out when she saw it. You come in just the nick of time for I'm beginning to feel hungry and I'll have cakes and cream for my dinner. But the wee bannock hopped around to the other side of the old woman's kern, with the old woman following. 
she was in such a hurry that she very nearly knocked her kern down, and by the time she set it right again, the wee bannock had run out of the door and halfway down the brae to the mill. The miller had been sifting meal in the trough, but the little cake running in had him straightening up. It's a sign of plenty when bannocks are running about with no one to look after them, he said. But I like bannocks and cheese, so just come in and I'll give you a night's lodging. But the wee bannock had no wish to be eaten up by the miller, and so it turned and ran. The miller was so busy, he did not trouble himself to chase it. The wee bannock ran on and on and on until it came across the smithy. The smith was at his anvil, busy making horseshoe nails, but he looked up when the little cake entered. If there's one thing I'm fond of, it's a glass of ale and a well-toasted cake, he cried. So come on in and welcome. But as soon as the little cake heard of the smith's ale, it turned and dashed out of the door as fast as it could, and the smith, now highly disappointed, ran after it with his hammer in hand. When he saw that he could not catch it, the smith threw his heavy hammer at it in the hope of knocking it down, but luckily for the wee bannock, he missed his target. After, the bannock came to a farmhouse with a stack of peats standing at the back of the house. Into the farmhouse the wee bannock went. The master of the house had lint spread out on the floor and was separating the link from the stock while his wife continuously heckled what he had already done. Oh, Janet, the man cried out in surprise. Here comes a little bannock. It looks rare and good to eat. I shall have one half of it. And I shall have the other half, cried the man's wife. Hit it over the back with your cloven stick, Sandy, and knock it down. Quick, or it'll be out the door again. But once again, the bannock dodged behind a chair. Hoot, Janet disdainfully cried, for she thought that her husband may have easily hit it, and in her frustration she threw the heckle she had been using at it. But just like the clothing stick, the bannock dodged it and ran back out the door. This time, the bannock ran up a barnside until it came to a little cottage among the heather. The wife of the master of this cottage was making porridge for supper in a pot over the fire, while her husband sat in the corner braiding ropes of straw with which to tie up their cow. Oh, Jock, come here, come here, cried the wife. Don't you want a wee bannock for your supper? Come here, quick, help me catch it. Aye, okay, Jock assented, jumping to his feet and hurrying across the room to his wife. But where is it? I can't see it. There, man, there, his wife cried, under that chair. Run to that side and I'll keep, and I'll keep to this side. So Jock ran to the corner behind the chair, but unfortunately, in his haste, he tripped and fell. The wee bannock jumped over him, laughing, and, threw, and flew out the door. It ran on and on through the winds and up the hillside, then over the top of the hill until it reached a shepherd's cottage on the other side, where the shepherd and his wife were just setting down to their porridge. Save us and help us, the wife exclaimed, her spoon halfway to her mouth. There's a wee bannock come in to warm itself at our fire. Snack the door, cried the shepherd, and we'll try to catch it. It would come in handy after the porridge. But the little cake did not wait. Once again, it turned and ran as fast as it could, with the shepherd, his wife and all their children giving chase. On seeing that it could run faster than they could, the shepherd threw his bonnet at it. It almost struck the little cake, but it managed to dodge and escape. So it ran on, until it came across another cottage where the folk were readying themselves for bed. The master of the cottage was half undressed and his wife was carefully raking the cinders out of their fire. What's that? he asked, for the bowl of bros that I had for supper wasn't very big. Catch it then, his wife answered, and I'll have a bit too. Quick, quick, throw your coat over it, or it'll be away. So the old man threw his coat directly on top of the wee bannock and almost managed to smother it, but it bravely struggled out and got out from under his coat, breathless and hot, and ran out once again into the grey light, for night was beginning to fall, and the old man ran out after it without his coat. He chased it and chased it through the stackyard across a field and then almost into a patch of winds. He lost it then, and since he was beginning to feel cold without his coat, decided to go home. As for the poor wee bannock, 
They thought that it would hide under a windbush and lie there until morning, but it was so dark that it never saw that there was a fox's hole. Down, down it fell, and the fox was very glad to see it, for he had no food for days. Oh, welcome, welcome, he cried out, before snapping the little cake directly through the middle with his teeth. And that was the end of the poor wee bannock. So, um, it's giving gingerbread man vibes. And this is what Wikipedia said about the gingerbread man story. The gingerbread man is a fairy tale about a gingerbread man's escape from various pursuers until his eventual demise between the jaws of a fox. It first appeared in print in the May 1875 issue of the St. Nicholas magazine in a tale which depends on repetitive scenes, as we saw, featuring uh, an ever-growing list of characters. So, obviously the wee bannock fits in with that perfectly because it is a lengthening list of characters and repetitive scenes. Um, it's quite tiring to read out, actually. Um, but it is quite lighthearted and humorous. Um, and runaway food is surprisingly a theme in folklore across Europe. Um, so, like, the Slavic kolobok, who's a ball of dough, and the Norse uh, pancake, and Hungarian little dumpling. So all the versions seem to have in common that they have a theme of an old childless couple making an item of food which runs away um, and encounters lots of people and then is devoured by an animal. So I wasn't <laughs> sure what this could mean, but I did notice that across all of the versions the food in question was a bread-based one. Um, and it got me thinking of the term bun in the oven, meaning, you know, someone who's pregnant. And I wondered if there was a connection to fertility issues. Um you know, the old, the childish couple creates this thing, whether it's a bannock or a gingerbread man, um, only for it to leave them and then eventually be devoured by a wild beast. Um, so the term bun in the oven dates to 1951 uh, in the novel The Cruel Sea by Nicholas Monserrat. However, um, so this is more of a contemporary phrase, turn of phrase. However, wombs have been compared to ovens for many, many, many years. Um, we know that goddesses have been long associated with grain. There was Demeter in Greece, uh, Ceres and Anona in Rome, and then Ukamochi, Ukamochi uh, in Japan. Sorry about the pronunciation. There was even a bread oven found in Hungary dating from around 5000 uh, BC in the shape of a pregnant uterus. The Kukateni settlement in western Ukraine um, had a bread oven that was found at the focal point of the altar, and the altar contained wide-hipped feminine figures on the steps leading up to the entrance, which is obviously a symbol of fertility. Um, grain and harvest has always been a symbol of regeneration and rebirth, um, which is exemplified through the English John Barleycorn, who grows throughout the summer, is then cut down and sacrificed in the autumn, and reborn in the spring as new shoots. So, to conclude my TED talk, the Wee Bannock is a silly little story about a silly little bannock that comes to life, um, but it is part of a tradition of baked goods running away. And could these stories have had a sadder meaning, perhaps to explain a failed pregnancy to younger family members? Who knows? We'll leave that up to you. That is quite a sad wee story, but it kind of made me think at the beginning, especially with it coming to life, about how many foods are sort of personified, like the haggis is also mm. this animal type creature and the bannock's a little creature and you've got obviously you mentioned gingerbread man kind of comes to life and very very similar stories it's quite interesting the personification of food and folklore 
I also like how um, it was a, a little young Bannock, and that's why it could run outrun the old lady. Not that it's a mythical creature. Yeah, yeah. So I really enjoyed that logic. Although well, Bannocks <laughs> don't really even have legs, so how it outran anyone's. I really want to know that. <laughs> was it just rolling, or did it, did it have legs? Did it have arms? Did was it, just it just legs? Float. Yeah. Ominously. <laughs> so many Although, because it says ran. Yeah. So. Yeah. I like as well that nobody in the whole thing was like, oh, that'd make a nice pet. It's a running biscuit. <laughs> They're all like, ah, oh, biscuit is running. We don't need any explanation. We'll just have it for our dinner. <laughs> so in my head, like, not just with the wee bannock, but with like the gingerbread men style stories like around the world, because it is like a weird tradition that we have where we're like, this baked thing came alive and then got eaten. <laughs> but I was thinking like, it does lend, like, because it's kind, kind of whimsical, it does lend itself quite well to, you know, telling it to children because of, like, all the different characters and the fact it's so repetitive makes it easy to remember. Um, and, you know, the characters are really quite, like, eccentric. Like, they do kind of exaggerated things. Um, so in my head it was kind of like, you know, mum's pregnant. And then all of a sudden she's not, and a child is like, what happened? And the parents like, oh, well, you know, we we made some bread, and then it jumped up, and it ran away, and, and it saw all these people that went on this big adventure work. My main issue with that is, like, from our depiction of the time when these stories were written and told, the, you know, children were very much given a bit more of a brutal life. I don't think they'd be tiptoeing around the subject. <laughs> Like, yeah, but I think people these ones that are on farms are ones that have to go out and kill their own pet cow or whatever. So that's true. But I all I also feel like people have always been people, and we've always wanted to tell stories to explain things. Mm. You know, or like at least maybe even not to like explain it to a child, but to like make sense of it ourselves. I was just thinking anyway. that it's a nicer thought than being like, "Oh, I lost my baby." Yeah. It's like, oh well, you know. It went on this big grand adventure, but it just didn't like it didn't work out. The adventure yeah, had to come to an end. Yeah, the the forces of nature happened, and and foxes are like. Yeah. I mean, it's usually in these stories, it's like some kind of like wily predator that gets the baked good at the end. Yeah, and like, so it's like an animal you wouldn't have a chance against anyway. I was particularly excited about the idea of doing an episode on food as not too long ago I discovered a love for cooking and I also can't remember the last time I said no to a pizza or a burger. <laughs> so I'm quite a foodie. Um, however, you may or may not be surprised to learn that fast food doesn't really appear in folklore. Instead, we have a lot of stories and traditions and even works of art that revolve around fruits and vegetables, particularly things like pears or grapes, cabbage, potatoes, grains things that were quite easy to grow, especially in Scotland. And one of the key things that was grown and that Scotland is known for is apples. In fact, in Scottish folklore, apples have long been associated with magic and wisdom and the power of nature. Scottish crab apples in particular became the pride of local farmers as the variety was popularised for its ability to grow in most soil types, as well as producing really delicious fruit that worked well in jams and wines and different common foods. Crab apples are quite a small variety. They normally grow to less than two inches in diameter on average, and they're essentially quite sour but quite tangy. 
I actually struggled to find a year when crab apples were first cultivated in Scotland because some estimates place the timeline as over four and a half thousand years ago, while others suggest it may have been one and a half thousand years ago. So it's not very certain. However, what is, is that these apples have played a significant role in many traditional stories and legends and have become an important part of Scottish culture themselves. There are therefore many depictions across different stories, but to save time and not make this a literal apple podcast, I will cut it down to two traditions and one story, but you can leave more in the comments and we might even discuss them in more detail on another episode. One of the better known apple related stories in Scottish folklore is the legend of the Isle of Apples, also known as Avalon, and yes, that Avalon with the Knights of the Round Table and King Arthur. As a mythical land, Avalon has many supposed locations, and over the years some have guessed it to be as close as England or even as far away as Spain, but a good contender for its real location still remains the Isle of Arran off the coast of Scotland. Considering the characters in the story of King of Arthur included many fairy-like beings and sirens, and of course, apples, we can at least assume the tale had some roots in Scotland. The Isle of Apples was a truly mystical place and got its name as the trees there grew apples all year round and other crops and plants were abundant and everything always seemed to be in season, yet there was no need for farmers. It was all nature's work and food was always available. It was a land where the people outlived others by many years, living to be over a hundred, which was unheard of all those years ago. This was because the apples were said to grant youth and wisdom to anyone who ate them, amongst other health benefits. Other ties to apples are also hidden in the background of popular tales, such as the spin-off story about Arthur's nephew in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, where Gawain is challenged to strike a green knight with an axe, but then a year and a day later must accept the same from the Green Knight. Gawain accepts, assuming that the strike will be lethal and he will not need to live up to his end of the deal. However, the magical green knight simply picks up his head and leaves, vowing to return the following year. Later in the story, Gawain meets a lady at an apple orchard, who offers him a magical green sash that will protect him. He accepts and wears it under his clothes, but does not tell the green knight, who proceeds to strike Gawain with his axe during their meet. He then admits he knew about the sash all along, and was actually testing Gawain's honesty. Here, the apple orchard and the lady are a symbol of temptation and also deception, not too dissimilar to other works over the years, where apples are always regarded as a symbol of knowledge, but also have the dark connotation of deception and dishonesty. In addition to these tales, apples have played a significant role in many other aspects of folklore. For example, it was believed that if a person, usually a young unmarried woman, peeled an apple in one long strip and then tossed it over her shoulder, the shape it made on the ground would reveal the initials of her future spouse. Apples were also used in witchcraft and other practices, where cutting an apple in half and examining the pattern of the core inside was used to tell the future, or throwing seeds in the air and observing where they point to when they land will foretell the direction from which your future spouse will arrive. All of these are associated with love, temptation and magic, so we're brought back to the symbolism of apples being the all-knowing, and presenting the opportunity to abuse that knowledge and give in to temptation. Apples have also created more innocent traditions and customs, such as the duking for apples, a competitive kids Halloween game that involves retrieving a floating apple for a bucket, from a bucket full of water, using only your mouth, with the goal of the game being to get the most apples. In more traditional iterations of the game, it was actually played by young women, 
and the first to retrieve an apple would become the first to get married in the coming year. And lastly, in a nod to a story that I told on the last episode of the Cranog, apples also appear in the story of the Kalia, who we learned was the Queen of Winter. She controls the length of the winters and transforms with the coming of spring. And as apples were one of the first fruits to appear in spring, the Kaliach is associated with the apple harvest. She's also depicted as a wise old woman, with apples being the fruit that is traditionally associated with wisdom. And with all the associations of love, the Kaliach was also associated with love and bearing children. As you see, apples are a key but silent character in many folklore tales, and have inspired many traditions that are even popular today. Many apple orchards in Scotland even run Apple Days in celebration of Scottish variants, and there is also a National Apple Day on October 21st, which is appropriately close to Halloween. I love a bit of Avalon. I did not know prior to this that it was called um, the Isle of Apples. Mm. I just knew it as Avalon, and I kind of more knew it as being more English. I like the the bit about the crab apples and how far Mm. back they've gone. Like That one's more of a history thing, but I just... When you look at kind of apple trees and things, like there's so many we've imported our crossbred species and things, but yeah, crab apples do seem like a hardy breed that would have been here for a long time before. Because I've got a little crab apple tree in my garden back home, which, like, it won't be an old, old tree. It'll probably be maybe 40, 50 years old, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit less, but it's still so tiny. But there, a lot of them you'll find they're much smaller, just very hardy trees. And they make such little fruits. And I didn't know you could make wine out of it. So that's what I'll be doing with the harvest of them next time. It was, I found it interesting about the Kaliak as well. With the kind of the apples being the kind of sign of spring. Because I suppose the, the apple blossom is one of the first things mm. that you see. Because I don't think you traditionally you'd associate apples with spring. Because it's normally what, about September, mid-September the apple harvest normally. But like the apple blossom, they are one of the first things you, you see. Especially um, crab apples and things. Such nice little almost cherry blossom like. Um, flowers they produce. I suppose in a way it's almost like a symbol for like the cycle of life then, you mm. know it's the first thing to spring up Yeah, and then it's almost autumn by the time yeah. they're gone, yeah I'm unsure so Avalon um, as a concept, as this like Isle of the Blessed um, comes from the Welsh um, afterlife, Anun um, which is thought to be this like land of eternal twilight where you know people go when they die um and that's where the idea of avalon comes from um but what i was gonna say is that um it's interesting because the fruit that was on the tree in eden um it's never specified that it's an apple but you know it's just like the forbidden fruit but we obviously all like we associate it with being an apple. It's always an apple when we talk about, you know, the apple of wisdom, the apple of knowledge. Um and there's a story in Greek mythology um about the golden apple. And basically there's this uh, the goddess of disagreement doesn't get invited to a wedding. Um and she's really, really annoyed about this because she wants to go to a wedding. Um <laughs> so she like takes herself up to the mountain where the wedding's happening and she takes a golden apple um and puts it on the banquet table and the the golden apple is described as the fruit of temptation in this story um and the apple is supposed to go to the fairest that's at the the banquet 
Um, and three goddesses come forward to claim the apple. So you've got Hera, the goddess of marriage, um, Athena, the goddess of wisdom, and Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Um, and Zeus has to decide who this apple is going to go to. Um, and, you know, he he cares about... Well, th- this says here, since all three were dear to him. I don't think Zeus knows what someone being dear to him means. <laughs> um... So, you know, as someone who personally played Zeus in a play, he's very, <laughs> very devout to Hera. <laughs> so, lies. Instead of um, instead of deciding for himself, because he can't possibly choose, even though his literal wife is there in the in the options, he pans off the decision to um. The, the Trojan Prince Paris, who we know from the Trojan War. So Hera and Athena, you know, they promise him power, they promise him glory. But um, Aphrodite seduces him, because she's Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Um, she seduces him and she offers him the most beautiful female mortal in the world, who is Helen of Sparta. Um, and Paris, you know, follows his loins and opts to give Aphrodite the golden apple um and then that's how we get the the Helen of Troy the Trojan War beginning so like as far back as like the Greek myths we've got this idea of the apple being an like you know a, a, an object of temptation um. what i do enjoy about like the whole image of like fertility um and you know spring with apples is that they're one of those fruits that's designed to you know, the way that the seeds are packaged, it's, you know, they're designed for some, like, an animal to come along, or someone like me who's unhinged to come along and eat the apple, including the seeds, and then poop it out somewhere, and then it grows a new tree. It's it's the cycle of life. I was, one thing I was thinking about when I was researching this was, like, the, the way that the apple could foretell who your future spouse would be based on mm. when you peel it. And I was like, how many people must have had a name that starts with a C or an O for that to work? Because <laughs> how many, <laughs> realistically, so I mean, you could get a D. I could see how you might get a D out of it. Mm-hmm. Or a P. Um, what you might find fun to know um, on the subject of apples and Avalon is that um, Glastonbury is thought to be the... So Glastonbury in the south of England where obviously the festival happens, is like meant to be this like sacred, holy um, town that lies on a bunch of ley lines. And that is thought to be where Avalon uh, is, or it is Avalon. Um, and they have apple orchards at the Tor. Um, so the Tor is the big hill, just uh, like just kind of on the edge of the town. And they think that, so where Glastonbury lies, it's in the kind of Somerset, levels um so way back in time that area would have flooded mm-hmm. and all that would have stuck out would have been this hill and that's where the idea of like the isle of avalon comes from and there's apple orchards like around the hill around the tor that now makes a lot more sense because i was reading it and they were like oh yeah glass from Bay could be like this isle of apple and i was like but it's not an island what do you mean <laughs> Where are you getting the island from? <laughs> At least the yeah. Isle of Arran is an actual away from the coastline island, not. But that yeah. makes a lot more sense. I didn't know about the flooding. I hadn't actually heard about um the Isle of Arran being a possible Avalon. So that's really fun. Um, especially because like it's in the west and like 
you know, the like Avalon is supposed to be like the Celtic other, like the Welsh other world, which is believed to be in the west, because like the sun rises in the east, yeah, sets in the west. So Aaron is actually on the west. Uh, just a fun other contender for Avalon is uh, Majorca. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> Because it, they just saw this like faraway land and it was like warm and had apples on it, and they were like, there's Avalon. The story is set on the Isle of Lewis, um, and it revolves around a specific type of farmyard animal. But we'll come to that in probably about a minute and a half. We'll set our scene first. So it's the Isle of Lewis, it's getting to kind of late autumn time and things are a bit sparse. The harvest had failed that year, so there was no grains. The fishermen were going out to sea but not coming back. Some suspected the blue men of the Minch were pinching more than their fair share of them. So the, the regular folk of the island were struggling for food and as the days went on, they killed their farmyard animals to get the odd bit of meat to keep them going, but as they started to head into winter, less animals were about. And they killed the cows and got the food, but that meant they were short on milk and cheese and butters. One day when they were thinking all was lost, a group from the village went up to the standing stones at Kalanish and prayed out to the gods that they would be blessed with some bounty of food to keep them nourished through this harsh season. And as they were walking down, one of the villagers spotted out from the waves what seemed like a glinting white shape. Wandering down to the beach a bit later on, she came across, at that very spot, a white cow that seemed to be glowing. It had some pure energy, and she'd never seen a white cow in the first place, but this one almost shone, it was so bright. And uh, with it now being darker, it glowed almost like the moon. She wandered up to the cow thinking, well, I don't, I've not seen this cow before. I don't think it belongs to anyone in the village. Maybe this is the gift we've been blessed with. And before she could harness up the cow to take it back to the villagers for them to have a nice big barbecue, it spoke to her. And it said to her, I, I have come to help you. And at this point she was a bit perplexed and... She'd never heard a cow talk. She'd never seen a white cow, never seen a glowing cow, but she'd definitely never heard a cow talk. So she, um, thinking, oh, maybe I banged my head early in the day when I was stooping down to do some of the chores, or she asked, did you, did you just talk? <laughs> yes, talked. She was like, so they, they had a little bit of back and forward before she eventually believed she was speaking to this cow. And that the cow told her she'd been uh, told by the gods to come down and gift them each day with milk. She was like, one cow, there's not going to be enough milk for the whole place. But she was nope, trust me. So she went up to the stones and the, the cow stood there and was like, bring everyone in the morning with a pail and I'll fill every pail and you'll be nourished. So that next morning, all the villagers went up and they all filled their pails and the cow, true to its word, filled every single one of them as if by magic, because it probably was. And... When they went to drink the, their milk, they weren't just quenched of their thirst, sated by the little bit of hunger. No, they felt full, as if they'd eaten a full meal. All of their nutritious needs were filled by this pail of milk. 
And they came back the next day and they counted the same and the next day and the next day until they got to the end of the week. And then, as the villager that had spotted her was about to leave on the, the final day of the week, she, she stopped for a minute as the cow sounded in distress. She turned around to see that the cow was not able to fill this pail. And in looking a bit closer, she could see that the old crone from the north of Ireland had come down and was filling her pail. But her pail was in fact a sieve. And so no matter how much milk the cow put into the pail, it couldn't be filled. And on that, the cow turned, looked at the villager who she had first greeted and left out to the sea. Bounding into the sea and disappearing amongst the waves. She was never seen by the islanders again. Fortunately for most of the islanders, they'd had enough milk by that point to, to keep them going. And not too many starved, but um, enough that made them quite unhappy at this old crone. Uh, on one of the evenings, uh, as the, the villager that had first spotted the cow slept, she, she dreamt that the cow had come back to her and transformed into the shape of a woman where she professed to be the wife of the Celtic sun god who they'd been praying to on that day up on the stones of Kalanish and who would, who would occasionally present herself in the form of a cow. Now from some of my own research, um, it, it is thought that this could have been Bovinda who was the wife of uh, the Celtic sun god. I can't quite remember his name, it starts with a D. Afterwards in the discussion, I'll have a look at my phone and we'll figure it out. Um, and while that name was never really used in on Lewis, as far as I can see from written records, it was within the Celtic religions and used in Scotland at the time, so it quite possibly was the sun god they were pleading to. And from the set outs of Kalanish, think, they think possibly some sort of sun worship was involved in it. Um, so that's who the cow was thought to have been. And she did save a lot of them, and if it wasn't for that evil old crone, she probably would have saved them all. And that's the story of our cow, and while not quite food being milk, it did make them no longer hungry. So I would say, was ultimately food. Two things that stood out to me. Um, the first one being that this isn't the first story where a cow, a magic cow, has come to save the day. Because in Graham's story in our last episode... Rashi coats. There was the fairy god coo. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, which I think was a baby cow. Yeah. I think it was a calf. But again, like it was cow. Second all, second of all, um, if that connection, you know, with that connection to the sun god, um, plus the crone, it's giving like Kaliach versus like Angus and Bride style conflict there. With the, the, the glowing white cow being like the embodiment of, of, I don't know, like the sun and summer. And then the crone being like winter, draining it dry. Well, here I found the bit of which it was. It was, um, she, the cow professed to be, that some called her Buvinda, um, but she went by many other names. Uh, some also know her as the partner of Dagda, the god of sun. Uh, or the mother of Angus. <laughs> I just like the idea that like we're telling stories and we're like, hmm, we need a magical mentor that comes along to save the day. Has a look around the field around them. A coo! It's going to be a coo! And it's going to talk! 
It's such a shame that the cow is this sort of saviour in folklore and then throughout the years it's just been muddled to become derogatory. Like, if you were to yeah. think of a cow now, you would probably sort of giggle to yourself and picture someone you don't really like. Whereas before, <laughs> yeah. it was like, it's this like amazing animal, it has so much to offer. Like, you, I mean, if, if, if you like burgers, <laughs> you can have a burger. <laughs> or, like, their milk, to be fair, like, I'm, I, I grew up on a farm. But like cow's milk is really fatty, so mm-hmm. I, I could I could believe that they had like a pail of that and thought I'm not eating for a month. <laughs> it is purported to be a, a kind of a Celtic tale or, or originating from a Celtic tale, which was thought to be a kind of matriarchal society, even though they did have these kind of male Celtic gods like the the god of the sun and stuff like that. But I found it interesting that like when they pled to the gods and to the god of the sun and stuff, it was that the female goddess that'd been sent down to kind of be the matriarch of the community almost to alleviate them from from suffering according to this website that i've just pulled up (laughs) (laughs) just to be completely transparent um cattle were among the first animals to be domesticated Mm -hmm. um and a lot of cultures use them to symbolize like fertility um motherhood life um and interestingly it says here generosity which both cows that we've that we've talked about have been i was just thinking about the kind of like the two key animals that we get milk from at least like today which is i would say undoubtedly cow milk and goat milk um goats historically have been like symbols of lust um, but actually, it rings a bell. Like, isn't aren't so many devils and other creatures yeah. horned like a goat? A lot of demons are kind of like in goat form. Um, and like, I mean, incubuses. Oh yeah, and there was the other story that we did, and there was the the, the beautiful ladies that lure the men. They also had goat feet. The Baban she, yeah, like the Baban she yes. have goat feet. So like historically, cow, uh, not cows. Uh, historically, goats have been associated with lust and are symbols of lust. Whereas cows are symbols of like motherhood and fertility, um, it's almost like this duality again of the two like milk giving animals that we consume, which yeah, is probably like way too deep for what this is, but. Um... Thank you for listening to the Folklore Scotland podcast. We'll be back every week with more folkloric content from stories to analysis. The podcast is brought to you by Folklore Scotland, the charity that aims to make Scottish folklore accessible using digital platforms, telling the tales of the past with the technology of today. If you'd like to become a voluntary contributor or would like to get in touch, pop us an email at info at folklorescotland.com and you can find all of our social media as well as a list of sources in the show notes below. The charity also now has a Kofi page, which you can find in the show notes if you would like to help us continue the work that we do. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.